3617, respond to report of shots fired. The Coroner Talk podcast takes you behind the scenes with coroners, clinicians, and death investigators from around the world to provide training, news, and interviews from leading experts in the area of death investigation and scene management, bringing real stories and solid training together in one source. Now, here's your host, Darren Dake. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of Coroner Talk, the only podcast in iTunes dedicated to the men and women in the field of death investigation, and of course, those in supporting roles. It feels so good to keep uh, doing coming to you every single week. And you know what? If you're a longtime listener, you know that just a few weeks ago, we had a goodbye episode because we thought we were going to go away. But you know what? We have an 11th hour fix, and we're back. We're going to stay here. I think we're going to stay here. We've been at this four years. Let's just stick around for another four, and then we'll decide where to go from there. How about that? So today is going to be a really, really, really great episode. We have Dr. Scott Bond, which is a criminologist, a professor. He's been on TV. He does a lot of correspondent work, things like that. He's wrote a couple of books. I realized that we had Dr. Bond on the podcast in December of 2014. And as this episode here comes out live, it's January of 2019. So that's been, you know what, four years ago. So it's been a long time since he's been on on our show. But we're going to talk about serial killers. We're going to talk about Dennis Rader. We're going to talk about Berkowitz. We're going to talk about, uh, I think there's Jeffrey Dahmer in there. But then also we're going to we're going to talk about the primary reasons why serial killers exist. What's their primary motives? And we're also going to talk about a new book that he has written. Towards the end of our conversation, we talk about a new book that he was written, Evil Guardian, and how that can be a great training point for you. So we've got a lot packed in to this show. But I want to give you a couple of updates on some things before we get started on that. So I want you to remember that as this comes out live, it is January 2019 and March of 2019 is going to be our medical legal death investigation class. Now, formally, it's been called the medical legal death investigator level one course. Now, much of the course is the same, except it has went from 26 hours to 40 hours. We have combined we have done this by combining some online training. So now we have four days in classroom. And we've got some practical application that we're going to have. We've got some mock crime scenes that we're going to do. A lot of those same lecture information is the same, but we've modified it and added in some practical component. Plus, we've added in some human osteology, some surface and bare body recovery stuff we're going to do with with a forensic archaeologist, an anthropologist. And then, of course, we're adding in eight and a half hours of online training. So not only would you come to Missouri and be in the academy for some lecture and some hands-on stuff, you will also then have eight and a half hours of online courses you can take, which will give you a total of 40 hours. So this is the same course as, well, no, it's not the same course. It's what we used to call level one, and now it's expanded. 
If you've taken the level one already, then much of the information that you'll have, you'll get is going to be the same, but is a lot more. So you'd be worthwhile to come again. But if you haven't came at all, remember, we only do this in March and October. So it's, it's something that you need to take advantage of. It's a fantastic course. And now we've made it even better. So that's going to be in March of 2019. You can go to the website, cornertalk.com or ditacademy.org find out all the information, get registered because this class will fill up. We have to maintain about a 25 student registration. Uh, and, and we, if you pass that, then we'll probably have to move you to October and this course will fill up. The problem is people wait to the last minute. And in March, they're trying to sign up for classes that we don't have room for. So please, please, please get signed up, registered early so that we know how many people's coming in and then we can reserve your spot. So I also want to remind you that we've got a lot of other training coming up. In August, we have a criminal investigation course, two-week course for crime scene investigation. In July, we have the surface and bare body four-day short course. Lots and lots of courses here in Missouri that you can come and take advantage of. But besides courses, I also want to give a plug for Death Investigator Magazine. If you do not have your subscription yet, you need to jump in and get your subscription. It is becoming a really, really sought after publication. We've got a lot of great writers. We've got a lot of great information in there. If you don't have your subscription yet, jump over and get that. And if you are a writer or want to contribute in some way, we certainly would love to have you be a part of the Death Investigator magazine. And you can find that at deathinvestigatormagazine.com or you can download the app in your iOS device or Android from the Google Play Store. And people have asked us, can we read this like on a laptop? As of today, the answer is no. It has to be on an app through a tablet or a phone or something like that, some smart device. However, we anticipate that within just another month or so, they will have the ability to be able to read it on a laptop or a desktop computer or something like that. That is coming. And so just hang on. Go ahead and get your subscription now. Read it on your tablet. Hang on. And we will have it on the computer in just a few more weeks, I believe. All right. And the last thing I want to bring up is, is Australia listening? See, I figure if I say it enough times, that some people down in Australia will finally hear that I want to come speak in Australia. I, I've started to book some uh, speaking engagements across the United States for 2019. If you want me to come to your state, now is the time to get a hold of me because we are booking up these conferences and I can come and speak to your conference anywhere in the United States anytime this year. But I, what I just mentioned about some training we've got, plus I got some other conferences and we'll get booked. My goal this year is to get to your state. I will help in every way I can to make that work out. If you get what I'm saying, contact me. I will help you get that worked out. However, along with that, my goal in 2019 is to speak in Australia. So if you're in Australia and you have any ability whatsoever to be scheduling speakers, we need to talk. So I can, I can be very helpful in doing my part to get me down there if you'll do your part to get me down there. Remember, 2019 Training Conference, Australia. Get the word out. If you know somebody who knows somebody, let's get that done. All right, so without any further delay, let's get into this conversation with Dr. Scott Bond. I let him introduce himself a little bit. A lot of you all already know him, but I know you're going to find this as a fascinating conversation that we had. 
adjust your earbuds, turn up those speakers, and hang on. It's now time for this week's featured conversation. All right, I'm back, and as I mentioned earlier, Dr. Scott Bond is on the show with us today, joining us via the Internet. You know, I just was talking to him pre-show, and we determined that it was December of 2014 was the last time he was on the Corner Talk podcast. And Dr. Bond, that has been entirely too long, but welcome back. I absolutely agree, and, and it's it's great to be back. I, I appreciate the invitation. You know, we've had a lot of comments over the last couple of years of of you, uh, why I, why we love serial killers. I think was your first or the other book that you wrote, and and of course we talked about um, serial killers and why people are interested in them and and all of that back in 2014 and we've had some interactions with some listeners since then um some good some bad why do we put emphasis on serial killers why are you glorifying them and the whole point is we're not glorifying them but we can learn from them and as investigators we need to learn from them when we start working other cases and i believe that's also where you come from with it yeah absolutely i mean it's it's really two parts it's it's one we can certainly learn something from these individuals that, that will be beneficial in the future in, in terms of um, understanding and apprehending uh, uh, future uh, uh, perpetrators. But then also, uh, I, what, I, what I'd like to do is, is sort of turn the mirror around and look at ourselves because there is this intense fascination um, with, with all things evil. And, um, and it's, you know, it seems to be a human condition and, and I'm trained, uh, in criminology and sociology. So I'm very fascinated from a societal standpoint, what, you know, why we're so intrigued by these people. Right. And I, I introduced you a little bit and, uh, you know, the listeners got a little bit of introduction about you, but, but just from your perspective, you do a lot. You're not just an author. You're, you know, you teach, you're a correspondent. You do a lot of things around this. So give us just a 30,000 foot view of kind of, kind of who Scott is and, and why you're an expert in this topic. Okay. My, um, uh, you know, my expertise, uh, comes from, um, I, uh, I do a, a blog for psychology today magazine called wicked deeds in which I examine all types of uh, criminal behavior from serial killing to uh, terrorism to white collar crime, state crime, uh, hate crime, all, all types of uh, uh, activity. Um, I, I am a professor. Um, I, teach, um, I teach courses in sociology and criminology. I'm frequently called upon by the, uh, the major media to comment on crime stories that are in the news right now. Um, I, I, as you mentioned, I write, uh, I write books. Uh, the book that I'm probably most well known for is, uh, why we love serial killers, the curious appeal of the world's most savage murderers, which again is as much a look at society as it is, uh, serial killers themselves. And then I have a new, um, uh, uh, my first work of fiction that just came out called evil guardian. And that's actually inspired or has been inspired by my, uh, my uh, interactions, correspondence, and interviews with real-life serial killers. Right, and I want to get into some of that as well. As to, Could you talk to uh, Dennis Rader and um, so, uh, maybe one or two others uh, to write this book, Evil That's Guardian? Right. But let's go back just a little bit. Since it's been so long since you've been on the show, um, let's talk a little bit about uh, the society love for serial killers. Let's just to catch everybody up a little bit, I guess, for new listeners, why do we, and you mentioned it a little bit, but why do we as a society have this fascination with serial killers 
you know, everything from television to books to magazines to, to people collecting memorabilia. Uh, why do right. we have this fascination? Well, that's a great question. And that was the uh, the question that inspired uh, the, the book, Why We Love Serial Killers. And um, I, it, it, it really started in the classroom when I was teaching my students. And any time I would mention serial killers, they would just lean forward in their seats and, and, and their ears would just uh, uh, pop up, uh, you know, like, uh, like, like bloodhounds uh, when, it, when I would mention the topic. And uh, that's what it said to me, man, there, there really is this intense fascination. And of course, I have it myself. You know, I'm, I'm interested in these things, too. And, and, um, and all the TV shows and the, the Netflix series, Mindhunter, you know, all, all these shows out there, people are fascinated. And I, and, and, I, and I think there are really um, discernible reasons why. And, and one of them has to do with, um, with, with our uh, human nature. And that is, uh, I think we are in awe of and, and try to understand things that are bigger than life, larger than life, and are very deadly. You know, if people are, are interested in tsunamis and tornadoes and hurricanes um, at one level. We're also interested in things like great white sharks predators in in the in the wild and in in, uh, in nature that are that are that are deadly and then uh, it's a logical extension that humans who are also rare exotic and deadly but at the same time it's also fascinating so we need to understand and um, I think I think too there's an adrenaline factor you know I don't know I don't know about you but when I was a kid I loved fun houses. I loved monster movies and haunted houses because it gives you this jolt of, of, of adrenaline. Um, roller coasters, you know, um, uh, how many 12-year-olds will ride roller coasters over and over until they literally become sick to their stomach? Um, it's the adrenaline rush that, that we get from that. And I think we get the same thing from serial killer stories. Um, it's that same sort of jolt, excitement, um, uh, uh, fear that um, becomes addictive. Adrenaline is actually a very addictive hormone. Um, so there's a visceral, physical aspect of it. And, um, and then as, you know, as, your, as your listeners or your viewers who are in, uh, in the professional field, there's that whodunit factor. Um, it's, a, it's a real life mystery. Um, these individuals, serial killers, are often very good at covering their tracks. They're very good at camouflaging their uh, behavior. And uh, so it makes for a great whodunit story that we we all want to be detect detectives and, and solve. So I think there are many reasons why we're fascinated by these individuals. Well, I agree that there there are many reasons why. And I know, you know, it's one of the things that really like you touched on this, people like the idea of the serial killer because they are bigger than life, so to speak. It, you know, it's mm -hmm. it's not just that, that some guy killed his girlfriend. You know, that that's I'm not putting light on that, but but that happens in the news every day. It's not a drive by. It's not a gang fight. You know, someone has been hunting people for a matter of time and killing people. And it be, there is a fear there. Uh, but I think the, the the fascination is what makes them tick, what makes them do it. And then some of these serial killers is you know, it could be sexual. It, it could be motivated by a higher calling. Uh, you know, they, they think God's having them do it or things like that. And so all of these things go into our psychology. I think not only just the, um, you know, the, 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 the fear and the adrenaline of it, but also trying to maybe understand it. Uh, how can someone do that? And it's so 
much bigger bigger than life, if I can say it that way. And I think it's one reason why the con- the more normal public is interested in it, uh, and and even investigators like myself interested in it from that level. But also, then we are interested in it, as you said, in who done it and why, so that if we see something similar, we can start putting those together. But there there are certain things that actually cause a serial killer to want to kill. And I know there's a broad, but what are some of the the, the low-level basics uh, that causes a serial killer to want to kill people? Yeah, great, great question. And and I think you really nailed on something there when you when you talked about the um, uh, you, the motivations of serial killers. It's it, these are passionless crimes. You know, ser- serial killers don't murder for for the reason that ninety nine percent of other homicides are committed. Uh, you know, the the vast majority of, of murders that are committed in in the United States or around the world, for that matter, are one time events, and they are they are crimes of passion, usually rage or anger that that uh, that lead to the, the the murder, and they're and they're not premeditated. Um, these are spontaneous events, um, so these are very different than serial killings. Serial killings are premeditated; they're planned out, sometimes meticulously, and they are passionless. Uh, um, meaning that they are done simply uh, because there is a, a, a compulsion um, to kill, as opposed to any any uh, uh, rage uh, or, or or underlying um, you know angers uh, that that would lead to it. And um, so now, what 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 does serial killers all have in common? There's one thing that they that they all have in common, and that is that they are driven by fantasy needs, um, and that fantasy can vary. The fantasy can be something like it can be sexually uh, uh, um, driven or or lustful. Uh, an example of that would be Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, he had a you know an underlying hedonism and lust. He actually believed that he loved these men that that, that he killed. And uh, and it's a, there's a myth out there that all serial killers are driven by sex or lust, and that's simply not the case. Uh, perhaps half. Perhaps half, 40, 50 percent uh, of serial killers may be driven in some way by, by sexual or lustful motivations. But there are many other uh, drives um, there. Um, there is power and control. There's just a need to dominate other human beings. Um, an example of that is uh, is Dennis Rader, uh, who called himself Bind, Torture, Kill, BTK, was driven by the, the need to be God and control life and life and death. That was his fantasy need. Um, in the, and um, you mentioned that some serial killers have visions or they're mandated by either Satan or God, they believe, to, to kill. Uh, David Berkowitz, uh, the son of Sam, who I ex- uh, interviewed extensively and um, spent time with, uh, actually, uh, at, uh, where he's locked up at Sullivan Correctional Facility in, in New York, uh, spent time with him, interviewing him there. He is what is referred to as a visionary killer, and he was a Satan-mandated killer. He believed that Satan wanted him to, to kill and that he would gain favor with Satan by, by committing uh, uh, his murders. Um, and then uh, another, another uh, type of, of um, motivation and, uh, and need is uh, what, what are referred to as comfort or gain killers, and oftentimes female serial killers and yes, there are female serial killers, probably the most infamous being um, Eileen Warnos of the, the, the movie Monster that Charlene uh, uh, Theron did a you know, wonderful job portraying her. She was, she was motivated 
um, by, uh, 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 by, by gain. She, she was looking for, uh, uh, money. I mean, she was a robber in addition to, um, uh, in, in addition to serial killing. So she was, uh, she was looking to, uh, profit from her, uh, from her murders. And that's often the case, by the way, with female serial killers. They kill for very different reasons. All right. So, you know, the biggest three, I guess, is either greed, lust, or higher calling, right? Mm-hmm. Something falls within those, those greed, lust, or higher calling is the three basic reasons serial killers kill. Yes. Uh, I mean, there are, there are, um, uh, uh, extensions to those, yep. but those are, are definitely yep. uh, 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 primary. And power and control is probably the largest single category of serial killers is, is power control killers. They're doing it for domination. So even the ones, and you said there's 40, 40 or 50 percent kill for sexual reasons, mm-hmm. but do the, even the power and domination, do they also probably participate in sex or is it just a matter of controlling and killing? Uh, it depends. Um, in the case of Dennis Rader, for example, and he's, an, he's a really good example of a power control killer, he would uh, have a sexual release post-mortem. So um, he, was, he was not a, a, a rapist. He, uh, some serial killers would, will have you know, raped their victims before they kill them. Dennis Rader didn't do that. He would kill his victims, and then frequently he would masturbate afterwards. He would, he would get off sexually but it was post-mortem. So really, um, his, his primary motivation, what he, what the, the thing that, that, that really gave, fulfilled his fantasy needs was the strangulation and the dominance and the control of the individual of life and death. Uh, that was what he really was uh, killing uh, for. And I know that Dennis uh, had this uh, thing he called Factor X, and I want to talk about that here in just a minute. But let me go backwards with Dennis. I, you know, because he... Uh, you know, he got off sexually after the killing, then mm-hmm. he was able for a while to control his urges. And there, you know, do you know how or why he was able to control it for several years? Uh, I think there was some, I think I've heard, but do you know why? And can you explain how he was able to control himself from actually acting out, but yet still fulfilling his needs? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, th- there's what's known as a cooling off period between serial killers, uh, uh, murders, and it, uh, they, they all have this, um, and to one extent or another. And it's, it's the, it's the period after a killing where they come da- back down from that high and they blend back into society. Um, and then the need to kill builds up again. And that cooling off period can range anywhere from, from days to weeks, or in the case of Dennis Rader, years. Um, and he is very unusual in that regard, as, as you said. Most serial killers don't wait you know, months, let alone years, between their, their killings. What he would do is when he felt the urge building to, um, uh, to kill again, he would relive uh, his murders, past murders, through fantasy. And he would dress up cutouts and dolls in the paraphernalia, the souvenirs that he kept, and he would fantasize and relive these experiences and then also have a sexual release at the end of it. And this would sustain himself. Sometimes this would give him the satisfaction that he needed that would prolong this cooling off period and enable him um, to not kill for, for some time. So, you know, the interesting thing about that is, is that he was obviously aware, conscious 
of uh, the fact that that he was that he was killing and that this is something that is, you know, is not a good thing. Um, uh, but but uh, uh, and, and he was in his own way attempting to control it, which I think is very interesting. And I and I brought that to his attention and he and he said to me, yes. And this is very ironic. He says society should be grateful to me because I found a way to sustain myself and I might have killed other people, more people. Uh, if I hadn't, so society should actually be thankful to me. So it wow. is, isn't that interesting? I mean, I, I guess there's probably unknown families that probably are thankful or would be thankful, but we wouldn't know who they were. But but yeah, so yeah, he, he uh, puts a lot of credit on himself there. But it it do you think it and then that I don't know how to phrase this. So Dennis Rader was, of course, involved in his church, and he was, you know, in some form of law enforcement, you know, as far as a code violation or something. I don't know. But, 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 but because of who he was as a person, did he try to control himself the way he did because he has these internal reasons not to, where some other serial killers don't have any of that. And so they're, they don't even care to control. They just kill, 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 kill. So do you think who Dennis Rader was to the other side of Dennis contributed to him trying to stop? Yeah, well, that, that's also a very interesting question. And um, he, he was psychologically compartmentalized. And, and what I mean by that is, is think almost like his brain is, is, a, is a house with separate rooms. And there, there was one room that was the BTK room, the killing room. But then there's another room that's daddy room and, and uh, husband room. And, and these are very different. And, 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 and this allowed him not to have internal conflict because when he was in daddy room, so to speak, he, he thought of himself as a very loving father, as a good father, as a good man. Um, and, and yet he could leave that room, go over into the BTK room and be lustful and and stalk and kill young women and have no contradiction between that and what he was doing as as father and and and, and husband. He saw no no contradiction there. So it's called psychological compartmentalization, and this enabled him not to have cognitive dissonance, not to feel guilt or shame or remorse. And of course, what his underlying pathology is, he was a psychopath. Um, he he was just incapable of truly empathizing with other uh, individuals. What he was able to do is very effectively mimic proper emotion. He knew what proper emotions were, and he was very good at, 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 at uh, masquerading and mimic them, even though he didn't really feel them. And, and, and he did know right from wrong. He absolutely knew, knew right from wrong. He was a, he was a, a Boy Scout uh, leader. He was the president of his church association. Um, he was very highly regarded and, and well respected in his town. So he seemed to be outwardly, at least a very moral, uh, upstanding individual. So he did know absolutely wrong, uh, immor immorality from, from, uh, uh, uh morality and, and, and right and wrong. And I think to an extent he was trying to control, uh, himself. What would happen? And you mentioned factor X, which is this compulsion that he had to kill. And sometimes that compulsion would just be too great. It would be like the itch that he had to scratch. It, it just, it was too, too much for him. And he didn't understand it. I asked him, I said, do, you know, do you understand this, this need? And he said, he said, no, he, he did not understand this need. It's almost like, think of almost like a drug addict who needs heroin, needs another fix of heroin. I think it's similar to that kind of compulsion that just becomes uncontrollable. Um, 
and and there are to your to your point or your or your question there are other serial killers who have lesser impulses um and um and 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 these oftentimes are individuals who are sociopathic as opposed to psychopathic um and there is a difference you know oftentimes sociopath and psychopath are used um uh, uh, uh to mean the same thing they're they're, they're used uh, uh you know as 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 being the same underlying condition but they're really not a psychopath is detached is completely detached and they're able to separate themselves from uh from from emotions completely um which makes them very calm and unflappable sociopaths are more um to, i like to use the analogy of a faulty electrical cord in the wall sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't and they tend to be more volatile they tend to be much more um spontaneous and aggressive and and can't control themselves so a uh a, a serial killer with with sociopathic tendencies much m- might be much more likely to act out spontaneously and um and even in in a fit of rage uh versus a Dennis Rader who is just like you know cold as ice Right, right. And uh, he can plan better. He can actually plan and Absolutely. execute better and probably doesn't get as sloppy. Those type of killers doesn't get as sloppy over time. Uh, and exactly. So, and, and that's a that's a good point as well. And something I want to – the rates of serial killers. Now, throughout the years, it seems to me, if I've studied this correctly – there's always a percentage of serial killers working within the world. Mm-hmm. And yes. throughout the reason why we have these big stories in the 70s and 80s is because if we watch homicide rates as a whole, all homicide rates go up as a whole, then serial killer rates go up as well. Now, mm-hmm. so so if homicide rates go down, serial killer rates go down, but but they're always still active. Um, and, and in the 70s, if we look at the FBI statistics, in the 70s and 80s, we had a really high climb of homicide overall, which caused some really big, high-profile serial killers. Now, am I, am I on the right track on that? Is that the right way of looking at that study? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, generally speaking, um, I think your, 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 your point is, is accurate. I think there's a, there's a bit more detail to it, but, but generally speaking, you're correct. It, the, if you look throughout history, uh, the... The um, percentage of all homicides committed by serial killers on an annual basis is about 1%. It's never more than 2%. So serial killers are actually represent a very, very small, minute portion of all of overall homicides. But because they get an un, uh, unprecedented amount of, 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 of exposure, serial killers historically have never represented more than 1% of, of all murders in the United States. So if you have, for example, uh, currently there's about 15,000 homicides per year in the United States. If 1% of them uh, are a result of, of serial killers, uh, that means that there's about 150 victims annually. And, uh, and at any given time, there may be uh, a, a dozen or up to two dozen serial killers actively in the United States. And I would say that that is still accurate today. Back in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, when the homicide rate was was much greater, then there were many more active serial killers, which is why uh, there was so much more attention drawn to them. 
But th- there's, a, there's another reason why the 1970s seemed to be the decade where serial killers exploded onto the, the scene. And that was because in 1974 was the year that the term serial killer was actually coined by Robert Ressler at, at the FBI. And it was the year that the FBI formed its behavioral science unit to study serial killers and, and serial uh, uh, rape and serial, and serial murder. So there was tremendous attention brought to it. And there were also new techniques and new technologies that were brought to it. So suddenly serial killers became the uh, sort of the, the, the new hot topic. Right. And I guess what's happened then is that's why a lot of this stuff has come to the forefront because, again, these are big cases. You know, uh, Gacy and, and um, uh, Bundy, those are some big cases in the 70s that still yet today is studied. That's ad- absolutely true. And so so the, the, the techniques, the, 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 the forensic science was being developed. The, uh, it was in the 70s that, the, that, the, that profiling really was born, true modern-day profiling was born. So all of the, uh, the police techniques enabled them to much better understand, identify, and apprehend serial killers. Um, and, of course, profilers themselves, folks like John Douglas and, and Bob Ressler and Roy Hazelwood, became sort of celebrities in their own right because they had, they had, had uh, created this new profiling phenomenon. So there was just so much attention drawn to it. Right. So, but, but why do you think, uh, uh, you know, when, when homicide rates go up, of course, again, one, one, never over 2% of, of, of homicides are serial killers. Why does that go up with normal homicide rates? What, what causes that to change? I guess that's what I'm asking. The, in other words, why does it ebb and flow and, and remain the same percentage? Well, that I guess, but then, but then part two of that is, and I'm having you speculate way off on a limb here, but why do some homicide rates, uh, it's just, it's not like Baltimore has got high rates and nowhere else. I'm talking about when homicide rates go up, it can trend up across the nation. And of course, serial killers go up with it. And seventies was extremely high. What causes homicide rates as a whole to ebb and flow as much as it does nationwide? Oh, that, well, that's a great question. And, and that's the basis for an entire, uh, uh, semester of a college course on, on, on homicide. And because there is no just one causal factor. I can tell you this, that, that one of the, one of the important factors related to homicide and all kinds of homicide, not just, not serial, but, but, uh, all types of homicide is the economy. And typically, if you, if you look at the past 100 years, starting, starting with, uh, the year 1900 uh, until now, 118 years later, you oftentimes, and more often than not, will see that the homicide rate uh, uh, is, is inversely, um, uh, related to the, uh, the, the economy. When the economy is bad, murder goes up. When the economy is good, murder goes down. And there, there are uh, very uh, logical reasons for that. Um, again, one, most murders are crimes of passion. And oftentimes murders, uh, more often than not, take place not only among people who know one another, but intimates. And if you think about intimate relationships, financial issues, and, uh, and so the economy, when the economy is bad and people are struggling to pay their bills, 
Um, it leads to conflict in the home, which is logical why domestic violence and, um, and, uh, and, and partner uh, violence and murder would, would increase. So that's just an example of, of why there's a relationship there between the economy and, um, uh, uh, and, and murder. Now, side, I believe, has, has, um, has gone down in the last 20 or 30 years, um, partially and, 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 and due to the, um, the increase and uh, expertise in forensic science and and criminalistics and and um, uh, and and new you know new new policing techniques. Uh, up until the 1970s, it was very difficult to even link serial murders. Um, I, in in fact, I, I there probably were more serial murders in in the uh, prior to the 1970s that we're unaware of simply because the murders were never even linked. We're much better at linking them now, and we're much better at um, identifying and apprehending these individuals. So, so some of the some of the uh, the reduction in homicide in the last twenty years, and and w- along with that reduction in serial uh, homicide, I think is due to better policing techniques and better technology. Well, and that uh, point can be proven through the Golden State. Uh, killer that you know recently been arrested and all that through dna i mean he operated for a long time during during the 70s and early 80s and was undetected because again there wasn't any you you know different communities didn't know what was going on in other communities and so he was able to operate without any identification at all that's right that's absolutely right that's a that's a great example and um and um you know many many of the of the uh, serial killers have been uh uh uh, ultimately undone by DNA and even Dennis Rader. Um, I mean, he sort of, he shot himself in the foot in terms of leading people to his door, but it was ultimately a DNA match with his daughter that enabled them to, uh, arrest him. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and then before we move on to Berkowitz here, I just want to get your opinion on something. Um, you know, now that we are using more and more of this public DNA, databases like the the golden state killer was uh, you know located with what's your opinion about do you, do you have an opinion about that what would you share about how police are now using these public databases well it's a, a, an individual who um submits their dna uh they need to be very careful and read the privacy rights if they don't want anyone to have access to it um you know be sure that you read all those disclaimers um, uh, understand what you're signing up for. Um, the, the law enforcement is, uh, is doing this legally, but once again, it's just like that when the police come to your, your front door and say, uh, can we come in and, and, and conduct a, uh, um, uh, you know, a, a search of your house? You have the right to say no if they don't have a search warrant. Um, so you, you need to understand your rights. You need to understand the law and be aware of what you're signing up for. Right. And for those who don't know, the listeners that don't know, the unique thing about the Golden State Killer is that they ran DNA profiles from public databases and narrowed it down to a possible suspects based upon other investigation information. But the suspect's DNA was not in any database. It's just that once they narrowed down to a possible and then they got a probable, they actually got his DNA through legal means, and that's what made the connection. So it didn't even have to do with the fact that he submitted anything. It's just relatives of other relatives did. 
Right. Yeah, they matched it through familial uh, DNA. Yes. Um, and um, uh, the so these these are terrific policing techniques, terrific uh, science that obviously enabled that uh, that that case to be to be solved. But uh, once again, you know what we're addressing here, and your question is about you know about privacy. So the uh, you know an individual just has to be aware of what they are you know what they're um, uh, getting involved with. Right. Um, and so it's it, you know these are it, technology you know technology is a wonderful thing, but you know, be careful how you use it. And, um, uh, so it's something for, as a, as a society that we need to take, you know, take a close look at. Right. So we talked a little bit about BTK. Let's talk a little bit about, I think evil guardian is also based on Berkowitz, correct? A little bit of both. So, well, really both. Um, right. but, uh, yeah, David, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam is of course, one of the most, um, uh, legendary, infamous of all serial killers uh, in, in in the world, and um, he's still in you know he's still in prison. He's been there for over forty years now, and um, I corresponded with him for several years, and uh, which ultimately uh, uh, culminated in a in a lengthy prison interview uh, uh, some years ago, um, and when I was writing my my book, Why We Love Serial Killers, and I actually. Um, just to, I think it's, it's an important point. I identified BTK and Son of Sam to correspond with for that book um, for a very important reason. These these were are two serial killers that are iconic. I mean, they they live in our popular culture. And in the case of BTK, he gave himself his own name. He named himself Fine Torture Kill and Son of Sam is also a reflection of the fact that uh, 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 David Berkowitz referred to Papa Sam in, in one of his letters um, to the police. So these were, these were two serial killers who craved notoriety, craved public attention, and, um, and, and really became these the sort of what I refer to as celebrity monsters in our, in our society. And, and for me, in writing this book about serial killers, they were the epitome of the, of the, um, uh, the larger-than-life um, almost, uh, uh, you know, great, like great white sharks, uh, you know, larger than life killers. That's why I, I picked them. And I was very uh, happy and felt fortunate that they were both willing to comply and, and correspond with me. So for those that don't know, give us a, just a real short rundown of what Berkowitz did, how he committed his murders and kind of what his MO was type thing. So we get, so the listeners that don't know who he is can get to know who he is kind of like we did with, with Dennis Rader. Okay. So, um, so David Berkowitz grew up, um, in, in New York city. Um, and, um, he, uh, was a, uh, uh, very sullen, loner as a child. Um, he, he was adopted. Um, he was sort of a, a, a social misfit and he was always looking for some kind of purpose in his life. He went into the army, uh, and he came out at the age of 21 and he told me he came, he, that he came out more lost than even than he went in. So he didn't find meaning. And, um, he began to dabble in the occult and Satanism and he became um, a, a satanic follower. He 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 believed in Satan, and he be somehow began to believe. It became a compulsion for him, and he believed that if he killed for Satan, that he would somehow find fulfillment and purpose in, in his life. And that's what drove him to kill. 
And so he, uh, he, he bought a gun, um, a Bulldog 44, um, which is a, a, you know, a very, very powerful revolver um, and um, uh, uh, a very powerful handgun. And he began, began to indiscriminately shoot people in 1976 in, in New York City. And what the reason that it terrified um, people so much is that he would just walk into parks or he would he would um, uh, walk up to cars where where usually a couple was sitting, um, a, a male and female, and he would just shoot them through the through the windshield with this powerful handgun. And so he was he was shooting not only women but also men, although women were his primary um, objective, he was shooting men as well. And um, it, it just seemed very random. So this caused terror throughout New York City. And uh, it culminated in 1977, which they referred to as the Summer of Sam in, uh, in New York. And he was finally uh, apprehended. But it was after a cat and mouse game in which he was Writing letters to uh, Jimmy Breslin uh, of the you know the the, the uh, legendary reporter, um, sending letters to the police, um, and he became this larger than life uh, uh, character, uh, the, the the son of Sam. And to this day, it's it's one of the um, you know it's one of the most uh, legendary crime cases in in U.S. history. So BTK Dennis Rader was obviously motivated by power and control. Uh, Berkowitz, right. he was motivated by a higher calling. Uh, well, he thought he was doing right, and he was doing right for Satan. Did Berkowitz have any sexual component to his killings at all, afterwards or before? No, no, it, it, there was no sexual component to it. He uh, he simply shot them. He he was he killed. Um, it was there's a, a categorization here, a distinction between serial killers that I think uh, your audience might be interested in. It, some killer serial killers kill for the act of killing and others kill for the process of killing. In, in the case of David Berkowitz, what was important to him was the act of killing. Um, uh, uh, it, it, he didn't need to have physical contact. He did not need to spend time with his victims. Simply the act of killing, putting a bullet in them, he felt that he was fulfilling his mission to, to Satan. In the case of Dennis Rader, he was completely different. The process of killing is what was important to him. He had to study his victims. He had to abduct his victims, spend time with them, torture them, slowly strangle them, because it was that process of killing that made him feel like God. And that's what he needed, that power and control. So that's a very important distinction, and that I'm glad we talked about, the difference between the act of killing and the process of killing. Yes, yes, and and it and whatever motivates them will determine how uh, how they want to kill. So exactly. So I, we could go on and on about the about these two, and there's of course uh, lots of other serial killers we could talk about, and Gacy and Bundy, and they all have their reasons and 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 why they did did what they did. But but let's transition here in our last few minutes that we have, and and talk about. And you said it's an it's a work of fiction, but you wrote this mm-hmm. book, Evil Guardian. But mm-hmm. but the reason we brought up Berkowitz and Dennis Rader is because you kind of use those two characters to create Evil Guardian. Now again, it's a work of fiction based upon some facts, so it does it, it is a worthwhile uh, work to read. But tell us about 
what the, the evil guardian is about, who the main character is, what's the premise of the book itself? Sure, sure. Well, thank you uh, for asking that question. And, and um, yeah, after after my interviews and, and, and correspondence with Rader and, and, and Berkowitz, um, I was just, you know, so fascinated by how different they, they were, um, but yet how how uh, powerful and, um, and 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 really just fascinating their 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 motivations are. And it got me thinking, well, what about if there was a composite killer? What, what if there was a killer who uh, had aspects of, of, of both? And um, and so I created this character. His, his real name is Charles Lundquist. And by day, he is a religious man. He's actually a chaplain at the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility in Westchester, uh, New York, which is where Pamela Smart is. It's a it's a women's uh, 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 maximum security prison. So he's a religious man. He's, he's the chaplain. But He's got this alter ego that he calls the guardian, and he believes that he has been mandated by God to actually kill young females before the world can corrupt them. He needs to send them back to God. He, he fashions himself or envisions himself as a guardian angel, a protector of these young women, sending them back to God before the world, as I said, can, can, can uh, corrupt them and, 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 uh, and they become sinful. And so it's very ironic, um, but yet he thinks he's doing good. And um, he's a complete psychopath. He's completely compartmentalized like Dennis Rader. He's able to separate the good from the evil in, in his own mind. Um, but he also has the narcissism of Dennis Rader in that he loves to play cat and mouse with the, uh, the police. He is a power control killer. He loves domination. He loves the, uh, the fact that he fancies himself the angel of, uh, of God, which is why he calls himself the, the guardian. But once again, he's, he is motivated by, by a higher power like, uh, Berkowitz. And, um, and you've got a couple of interesting characters who are chasing him. One um, is the uh, the homicide captain of, of New York City. Uh, his name is James Pritchard, and he is uh, an, an obsessive, uh, brilliant uh, 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 detective. But he is damaged in his own way. His his wife and daughter were recently killed by a drunken driver, and so he's obsessed with catching this guy who's killing young females who are his daughter's own age. Um, and he's joined in this chase by a uh, brilliant and attractive um, FBI agent named Julia Cassidy, who becomes his uh, his partner in, in catching uh, this individual. And it becomes a whirlwind chase and uh, and uh, 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 game of uh, clue that carries them all over the tri-state area. And um, it's a pretty breezy, uh, fast-paced thriller that culminates in a classic showdown, but in a very unlikely locale. And um, it was a lot of fun to write and, and people who have read it so far seem to be enjoying it. And so I'm, uh, uh, it's, it's been a, you know, it's been a lot of fun. So I think that, the, and I have not read it yet, I'll be honest, I have just recently found out about it. And so I do intend to read it because it sounds fascinating. And one of the things that I, I think that I'm going to find, and from based on what you said too, Again, not only is it Berkowitz and, and Dennis Rader, you have spent a career studying serial killers, teaching students. Uh, you know, you know, this is you've made this your life in, in, in a lot of ways, psychology and killing and things like that. So the character in this book is going to probably be as real 
as any other fiction writer could probably make one because they, because you've been studying these people for so long that I would say once I get, you know, a reader would get into this book, they're going to have a hard time distinguishing fact from fiction. That's well, uh, thank you for that. Uh, that segue, because absolutely, I, I, I wrote this book for the, the, the true crime um, uh, follower people who are interested in forensics, people who are interested in um, investigation. Um, it's, it's packed. Uh, my book is absolutely packed with uh, 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 forensic facts and, um, and, and profiling techniques. Um, you will learn about profiling techniques through, through reading this book. And, it's, and I wrote it from the perspective of the mind of the killer. So you can literally get a sense of his compartmentalization and how he rationalizes all of this and thinks and plans and, and, uh, and, and attempts to manipulate the law enforcement. So it allows you to really get inside of the mind of this killer. And yes, I did it based upon, um, you know, my understanding and, and uh, training and uh, experience with these types of individuals. Right. So the training point here is, yes, this is an act of fiction or a, a work of fiction. Uh, but just as you said, the, uh, how his mind works, how he does the murders, how he tries to play with the police, all that's based on fact, which means those of us listening, investigators, can read the book, enjoy the fiction part of it. But also, as you said, with profiling stuff, really learn the inside mind of how a serial killer works, because again, you studied them for so long. Uh, this is fiction actually is a lot of truth. So it would make a great, uh, again, we're not calling it a text, but it would certainly make a great learning experience for an investigator who would read to be able to understand the mind of a killer. Hey, absolutely. Because all of the techniques of, um, of the, of the FBI profiling process are brought to life um, in in this novel, I, I use them and and as a, um, uh, you know as a basis for understanding this individual, and it's how ultimately the people who are on his trail um, uh, are, attempt to identify and apprehend him. So it is very much um, uh, a real life uh, uh, depiction of how one would go about uh, catching a a uh, an individual like this. Right, right. So a couple of just short questions about the book. Number one, if you could tell us, does does he have a certain way he likes to kill? And if so, what is it? Oh, yes. He, he is a, a strangler, just like uh, BTK. He, he needs that physical contact. Okay. And, and then does he, does he harm the people in his care at the facility or does he hunt people outside the facility? He hunts. He's a hunter. He's hunting young women in New York. He has a lair where he takes them and has his uh, ritual with them. So um, he is he would be co considered a, a highly meticulous, organized serial killer who goes to great lengths to dispose of, of his victims. In fact, he has a um, he has a baptismal uh, that he conducts. He 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 ties a religious cross around their neck which is uh, which weighs several pounds and it serves almost as an anchor to drag them to the bottom of the Hudson River. And he does a baptismal ceremony before he drops them into the river. So this is part of his ritual. He, so he he would he would be considered the the epitome of the organized, uh, uh, ritualized, highly meticulous, organized serial killer. Interesting. So that brings up another question. The hunt. What percentage of serial killers 
work based upon the hunt. Like, for instance, uh, Ted Bundy, I believe he was a hunter. Uh, if mm-hmm. I, if I, you know, um, but, but were Gacy, I, was he a hunter or was he more of an opportunist? And, and, and then what creates the, is, is the fact that the, a serial killer is a hunter, does that also give them a different distinction as a serial killer? Yes, absolutely. There is a type of serial killer that is a hunter and it's, it's, uh, the category is known as a thrill killer. And uh, the, the best example I can think of um, uh, in, in the history of serial killers would be uh, the Zodiac. The Zodiac was a, was a thrill killer. He, he literally hunted people um, the way someone would go to Africa and hunt, uh, you know, uh, 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 zebra or something. And, um, uh, and so the, what determines whether or not a serial killer would fall into the category of a thrill killer or, or a hunter, as you, as you ask, is what, the, what their underlying fantasy need is. And in the case of the Zodiac, his underlying fantasy need was thrill. He, need, he needed the, the, uh, the thrill of, uh, of stalking human beings. Um, that's what, what his, his need was. So again, he was, he was focused on the, um, uh, on the, on the act of killing. Um, but, but it was the act as a, uh, uh, as a hunting, uh, as a hunting act. Um, so, uh, BTK would definitely fall into that predatory hunter category. Um, but somebody like, um, Jeffrey Dahmer or John Wayne Gacy would not, they, uh, they, they needed power and control, but they were not hunting, uh, individuals. They, it was based upon, um, attraction to a particular, uh, individual that they, that they encountered. So again, the real answer to your question is it, you have to look at what the underlying fantasy need is, and that will determine whether or not an individual would fall into that sort of hunter category. Right, right. And the character in Evil Guardian is a hunter. Without a doubt. Yeah, without a doubt, he, uh, he is. And, um, uh, and he, but, but for him, what really gives him the satisfaction is the power and control, the domination once again. He, he enjoys being the, uh, what, what he, in, his, in his mind, the, uh, uh, the, the guardian angel of God. Yeah, it, it gives him uh, purpose and, and, and meaning and, uh, and power and control once again. Right, right. Well, sounds very interesting. I, d- I definitely want to read it, and I'm sure it's going to be a, a learning uh, opportunity as well. Where can someone, I'll have some stuff in the show notes, but where can someone find Evil Guardian? I guess Amazon and all the popular sites? Well, it's, uh, I have an exclusive uh, publishing uh, uh, arrangement with uh, Amazon. So uh, wh- whether you are interested in paperback or whether you like to read uh, the ebook, uh, Kindle, uh, you, you can order it uh, in both formats there, Kindle and, and, uh, uh, and paperback on Amazon. And again, it's, it's Evil Guardian. So are you going to create an audio book in your own voice soon, or is that something that you may wait on? Um, you, you mean f- for my novel? Yeah, for Evil Guardian. Um, I, I may, I, I may possibly, my, my other, my first book, um, uh, about serial killers, which was the, you know, the, uh, why we love serial killers was done very professionally as, a, uh, as an audiobook by a, by a professional narrator. Um, and I, I was very pleased with that. So we'll see. I haven't decided yet. Um, I'm actually, something I'm working on right now is, um, um, an adaptation 
of the of the uh, legendary Jack the Ripper story. I have um, uh, uh, a particular suspect that has never really been um, uh, uh, fleshed out in terms of the um, uh, this this narrative, and so it's a sort of a fact based fiction um, uh, attempting to solve the case of Jack the Ripper, but based all on historical facts and, and, and figures. And I'm working on that right now. Right now. That would be, that would, that would be very nice. Well, Dr. Scott Bond, I appreciate it. You know what? Let's not let four years go by before you come back on the show. So, but I do appreciate your time coming on today and not only educating us on some, some serial killer things, but also introducing your new book for us. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. Have a great day, my friend. You too. All right, I'm back with you kind of live, so to speak. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Bond. He is a fantastic person, and I don't know why we waited four years to have him back on the show. Hopefully, we're not going to wait another four years, and we'll get him on. So lots to hear, lots to learn about serial killers. I mean, we just touched the surface there. I mean, there's no way we've really uh, been able to dig into that on, on an hour-long show. But there's things you can do to learn more yourself. And some of that is, of course, reading some of the books he's written and some of the other training that you can take uh, about this topic of serial killer. Now, in your career, you probably won't work a ser- serial murder case, but you might. And also, the more you learn, you might dis- learn that you're working a serial murder case and you wouldn't have known that had you not self-taught some, right? So it's always good to be learning. So again, I want to thank you for spending this time with me. If you're still listening and you still got them head bu- them earbuds in, one of two things. You either found this information very enjoyable and you like to listen along or you're kind of stuck on a treadmill or a run and you can't get to your phone to change me. But either way, I'm glad that you stayed this long. Like I say, every single week, and I'm going to continue to say this for absolutely as long as we are producing this podcast, find a way to be a blessing to someone. This world is full of enough bad, enough political crap, and enough negative. We need to find a way to bless someone, even if that's opening the door, smiling, and saying hi or giving your neighbor a grocery bag full of food because they can't afford to buy it themselves. Something, do something to bless someone. And I promise you, as I've always told you, it will come back to you tenfold if you do it for the purpose of just blessing. Above all, everyone, till next week, be safe. Thanks for listening to Coroner Talk, a DSPN media production. Visit our website at coronertalk.com. And be sure to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash coroner training. 3617-1024-Scene on route to morgue. kids, no gun. He must have grabbed a knife for self-defense. What the hell's happened here? Frank, it's called crime scene investigation.